Hi, I'm Kelly Forden. I'm here today with Jeff Bandy Zandy, and we are going to be talking about his story, Load, which was first published on Fiction Circus. Um, hi, Jeff. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Kelly? Good. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so first, before we get into talking about the story, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the collection and how this story fits into the theme of the collection itself. Okay, uh, yeah, um, Load was collected in a, a group of stories or a book of stories published by Whistling Shade Press called the Neighborhood Division. And that it's also a Neighborhood Division is also one of the stories in the collection. Um, I never, I didn't set out necessarily to write a collection. You know, I, I don't know that, a lot of short story writers do. I think you realize you have a collection, um, but I'm sure there are people, everybody, I, as you discover, everybody works differently. And some people do set out to write a short story collection. Um, mine end up, my realization that I have a collection is usually one, a certain number of stories. You know, I'll realize it's like, oh, I've cleared the double digit mark. I've got 10 stories. How do these stories play off of each other? And that's when I realized that the neighborhood division um, had potential as a collection because it kind of deals, I don't know, the, the big theme of the book is kind of self versus community, how much we focus on our own needs, protective of our own needs, ourself, but how that can, that can also kind of devolve into isolationism. And how much we give of ourselves to the community, which is something that's, I think, celebrated, but but also taken to an extreme, like the micro can suffer if you're too focused on the on the macro, uh, the, you know, trying to serve the community, you might not be serving the immediate circle of people who are truly dependent on your children, spouses, family, etc. So that was kind of the th themes I realized were playing throughout all of these stories. Um, load is among three stories in the collection that I would call like speculative or almost bordering on sci-fi, um, literary sci-fi, slipstream, whatever you want to call that kind of the genre that plays a little bit with futuristic. I would say Load is definitely set in the future, some kind of uh, dystopian future to some extent. So I wrote Load again when I was experimenting with writing some speculative kind of stories like The Neighborhood Division or Lilacs in October. I just really liked, I think I was reading Fahrenheit 451 at the time. I think I think dystopian and kind of literary sci-fi almost is, can be more overt in exploring ideas. It's almost like you're given a little bit more leeway to be philosophical it's almost assumed they're going to be highly symbolic, highly representative of something going on in our world. Like my favorite dystopias take something that's currently going on in our world, but then, you know, turn the volume way up on it. Um, you know, take something like, you know, just as an example, it seems like, and obviously pharmaceuticals help a lot of people, but we also gravitate towards if we have something going on to take a pill rather than to, is there another way to address it that doesn't necessarily involve more chemicals, more stuff coming into our brain. So then you could imagine a story in which what if there were, what if there was a, the world got to a point where people 
like we're taking a pill every for every aspect of their day. You know, like they wake up in the morning and they take a pill in lieu of coffee and they're instantly awake. And then they go into the shower and they take a pill to to make the water best absorb into their hair. Like you, you could have this ridiculous thing where where pills are just, you know, part of not everybody's day, but every minute of everybody's day. Um, and then and then that I think allows the reader to reflect back on what is that saying about my own, you know, relationship to pharmaceuticals? Because obviously there are people with depression, people with anxiety. I mean, I'm not downplaying pharmaceuticals at all, but I think it's ingrained in our society in a very um, purposeful way by pharmaceutical companies. You know, look at how many commercials you watch where talk to your doctor about blah, blah, blah. There's advocating, right? Like that's, you just, so you walk into your doctor's office and what, you know, like, well, what about promethazole? You know, you know, the names of these things, obviously we've been taught, you know, socially conditioned that that's what you do if you have an issue. So I I like that aspect of, of slipstream. And I think to some extent I was exploring some things that are going on in our world through load, if that's a way to segue into the story. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I would have thought of it as way more dystopian if what happened in Miami hadn't happened. And um, just as a reminder, people will have read the story before we talk so we can give everything away or they're supposed to read the story before we um, before they listen to us. It's available on my website. But, you know, the building collapse in Miami um, made it feel really prescient, you know, like scary almost that you wrote that story before but infrastructure things were even kind of on the radar then right i mean we have it's why what's going on right now with the infrastructure package is so important we know that there are bridges collapsing we know that there are we know now obviously that there are buildings and you know again it's often driven by money right somebody down in florida knew what was going on but they fudged something or didn't, you know, whoever had the power to start doing something about that building structure didn't, even though there were red flags, as I remember, right? They had they had, had a kind of negative inspection a number of years ago. Well, they had a lot of cracking walls and, you know, like all sorts of, um, yeah, basically a lot of the same things that were in your story that, you know, he sees. And I thought it was interesting that, um, that Crow lives in the same apartment that his parents lived in mm-hmm. and that they also were killed basically by the infrastructure. When Can you explain what happened there to them and how you had the idea for that? I don't remember ex- exactly. You know, I wanted the character to have had something, you know, that kind of fuels his mission to, um, do something to be involved in trying to save the rest of the building. Um, so yeah, he needed that background of, of his parents, but yeah, in my mind probably like pipes and whatnot are more exposed in the lower floor room. Cause it's, you know, uh, it's really heavy handed symbolism, but obviously richer people live on the higher floors. And as you descend, you have uh, the people who live on the lower floors just getting by. So I'm imagining aesthetically pipes aren't hidden as much they're right out in the room but like the the building had a major shift as readers will know and it cracked a pipe 
that allowed gases to get into the parents' apartment and asphyxiate them in their sleep. Well, it was a good setup for why he's so uh, obsessed with getting the building fixed. I mean, it gives him, you know, a reason to be chasing after everybody. And But what other reasons were you thinking, you know, I mean, was that the main reason that he's so obsessed with getting everything fixed? I mean, that's a good enough reason, but... I think, uh, and, and this is one of the things, and I think this is why I, I expanded this story into a novel, is um, Crow is unlike a lot of my characters in other stories in that Crow is is like an activist. He believes in, you know, if you see, you know, I think Crow represents a lot of people in our world who see things that are going on that shouldn't be and they advocate they do what they can they you know to and 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 you have the extremes right like Dagmar in the story is much more militant you know she's at the point where it's like no you know we can't do this by soft degrees we we got to tackle this thing even if it means some people on the other side get hurt and then crow is more a kind of a belief in words that if you can just make people aware they're going to change their behavior, you know, and we've seen that with the pandemic, right? As long as you make people aware to wear masks and hundred percent of people do it. And okay. That was a little sarcastic, <laughs> but yeah, yeah that doesn't you know, that, work as well as you think it's going to. No. And I, and that's what I like about Crow is, you know, too many of my characters in my stories are kind of, you know, sad sacks. They don't really do anything until the very end of the story. And they just kind of ruminate on their problems throughout the story. And then they do some little tiny thing at the end of the story that might suggest redemption. That, oh, okay, this is the beginning of them changing. And I think Crow is active right from the get-go. I mean, he believes in his cause. He knows the importance of the cause. He really has kind of seen the writing on the wall, as we have with what? Climate change, everything else. There, you know... I think most of us shut that down, right? Or you wouldn't even get out of bed in the morning. If you, you know, if that's your first thought is like, well, this is fairly pointless because if we keep going the way we're going, the world is going to, you know, basically be unlivable in 20 years, 15 years, whatever, you know, climate change scientists are saying. And I think that's, you know, definitely what drives Crow is he realizes the world, their world, the entire building is at risk. You know, again, the building is just a metaphor for the planet. Um, yeah. And when you were, okay, so he goes to, you know, the board and he goes to the wealthy people who are building panic rooms. And, um, for each of those scenes, did you have an idea in mind of what their problem was exactly with Crow? Like, was it the board? Was it just about money? Um, the people who were building the panic rooms, did you have an idea what, what was on their mind? I was just curious. I think those are two huge motivating factors for people's behavior and a lot of times people's poor behavior, right? Fear or greed. Um, and yeah, it's, I think fear uh, is something that's played upon too by companies that want us to buy things. Like, you know, if you look at the statistics, statistically, it like take, for instance, the building and the story, statistically, the idea that somebody's going to break into your apartment and kill you are like probably 0.002%. But I'm sure the people who produce the panic rooms and have money to be made by them make it feel like it's a 70% chance that, you know, this is going to happen to you. And so their greed is is stimulating the fear that feeds the greed, right? Because then these rich people will you know, rules be damned, 
I want my steel reinforced panic room that I can go into should, you know, the 0.002% chance happen, I will be ready. And then I do think the board was largely, you know, there are members of the board who, you know, like politicians are there for the right reasons. And there are some who were probably once there for the right reasons and then realized there was money to be had. You know, they got charmed by it. So they could be manipulated, bought off or whatever. It's been a while since I've, my familiarity with the story is more from the novel uh, manuscript than it is from the story. So I'm trying to remember if the story makes clear that this is probably the last habitable building on the planet. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And I actually didn't know that you expanded it into a novel. So is that something you're working on now? Uh, It's kind of interesting when we, we were nine weeks into the semester when uh, my college, you know, sent everyone home to teach online in that winter of 2020. So the bulk of my classes were done anyway. It was mainly waiting. I mean, done with the teaching, right? My students had six weeks left now to show me what they had learned, to work on their short stories, to take their midterm exam in literature and and write their final paper. So I, I found myself kind of with six weeks of downtime. I think what I did that first semester was not even online teaching. It was just electronic patchwork to get me through to the end of the semester. The spring break before we got sent home, I got the idea that, oh, load could be expanded into a novel. So before we were sent home, I started it on spring break and I got 7,000 words into the novel. And I thought, okay, well, if by the end of April, I'm up to 20,000 words, I'll be in pretty good. And then I have this thing to work on for the summer of 2020. Well, we get sent home. Long story short, five weeks later, I'm done with the draft of the novel because I had all this time on my hands. And I think it was also a coping mechanism to not have to think about the pandemic so much. So it's not, uh, it's called Falling Sky, the novel. Um, same, very same. I mean, Crow is in it, Dagmar is in it, the board. Some of those things are expanded. There's some more characters. Um, he, but it, at the beginning of the novel, he's doing very similar things, advocating for the for the safety and structure of the building. But the novel makes much more clear that uh, this is, as far as they know, this is the only building that is even habitable on the planet. Like, yeah, so there are these uh, factories on the outskirts of the building, and that's where the deliveries are coming from. So there's like these robot-driven cars that are delivery trucks that come to the bays and bring the uh, bring the items that the people on the upper floors are ordering. Um, but the but the factories are all robotic, still owned by people who live in the building and there's money to be made. But yeah, so that idea is, is expanded on a lot more, this idea that it's not just a building, it's it's the building as far as they know. Am I right in ascertaining that they do they don't want to deal with the infrastructure problems in the building because that just like the problems in the world that's so overwhelming right that they've compartmentalized their fear into the panic rooms cuz you can actually do something right it's a tangible like the building they'd have to maybe even redo the entire building everybody would have to move out you'd have to go somewhere else it's just too much for them yeah, I was just wondering, like, why they were so resistant 
to dealing with the infrastructure problem when that would scare the heck out of me if I was in that building. <laughs> well, there's also a lot of, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, fake news from the board that everything is okay. That's true. Yeah. That, you know, these, these pilings, these steel pilings that we put into the basement have reinforced, they have the exoskeleton that was built that, you know, reinforces the structure of the building as far as they know. So just like you have people who adamantly believe that climate change is, is BS, that these are just, these are just cyclical things that weather goes through. And if you look at the history of weather, the planet has done this before. And if we go back to 1932, look at this unseasonably hot summer there was, this just happens. And there are people, I don't think, I think they literally believe that. They, you know, they're not doing it, but then there are people who want them to believe that, right? Oil companies and people who benefit from the status quo don't mind the idea floating out there that everything is okay. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of people in the building that they get these letters of reassurance from the board that everything is fine. And who wants to live thinking about that everything is not fine? Um, so yeah, I think it's human nature. It is. Yeah. What about the um, super and his wife? I love that their voices kept coming through the vent, you know, and they're um, like, I can't trust you. You lie. You spy on me, you know, all this. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just having this ongoing battle that they never, that never ends. So what was your thought when you put them in? I'm just curious um, what their role is in the story. I'm really glad you asked that because, and maybe it was more, relevant at the time but another thing that we live with that we don't think about is we have to also live with the idea that there are these nuclear weapons out there that no matter what we do i mean we can't even like at least we can comfort ourselves with climate change right and we can put our glass and our aluminum in a little basket and recycle it and feel like well i'm doing something right? That stuff could be in a landfill, but because of my actions, the world's a little bit better. Not enough to save it, but at least you feel you're doing nuclear weapons. There's nothing you can do. And they're in the hands of people who they shouldn't, you know, for a while, for four years here, not to get political, but they were in the hands of a pretty scary person. Uh, But it's scary at all that the ability to destroy the world a hundred times over is out there in the hands of people. So, and it it worked out really well. For me, the super and the super's wife represent basically America and Russia, and they are the superpowers. And that's why it worked out really well that it's called the super. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. And you got Sam, the the husband, Uncle Sam, and you have Anya, a very Russian name for for the wife. That's awesome. I didn't pick up on that. I love it. And that's underneath, like, and that's what the ending of the story is all about, is his realization that even with our little victory here, because he does, he's getting ready to speak to the board, right? And he knows he's going to be able to convince them um, that, especially with, wasn't there a board member who was very, uh, they felt, I don't know, I think of him as almost like Lamarck from Les Mis. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the, let's see, the Russell Scott of the board or the... Yes, the, the yeah. good one, the one that they believe has good intentions. Yeah. I think of that line from Les Mis where only, you know, what about Lamarck? He speaks for the people here below. 
and it, obviously it's huge in Les Mis when he dies, right? Because there, there was our last possible bigwig who might actually do something for us, and he's gone now. And it's and it's during Lamarck's funeral that they, you know, establish the barricade. The students do. So yeah, he's, he's excited. He's going to be able to do this speech. He knows he's going to be able to convince them. But then he goes to bed, and it's all at risk because. If, if the super really has dynamite in the basement, the whole building's coming down no matter what. And that's why he really wants, like, he can't sleep because the, he wants to hear their voices. It's like, at least if they're bickering, they're talking. Right. They're not going to end the world or right. end the apartment building. But he's Wow, like, that's so cool. I love that. Okay, so one, these are like a little curiosity to me was he goes up the stairs. Okay, so then there's the man who, the old man who falls out of bed and he calls him and he needs help. Mm-hmm. And Crow doesn't want to go up, you know, the many flights of stairs to help the guy, but then he does. Um, so I'm curious about that whole interaction and how that figures in. But also he goes up the stairs and I was thinking, why doesn't he use the elevator? To go up because I think the guy was on like the 70th floor. In my mind, for the people on the lower floors, there isn't even a, like a tenant's elevator. There might be a service elevator that the super or his his workers would use, but the tenants just have to use the stairs. Oh, interesting. Okay. In the um in the novel, the there is an elevator shaft. But it's it's actually filled with concrete because they thought that that would reinforce the structure. So the first 25 floors of the elevator are filled with concrete that hardened. And I did do research on this. I called some people in our uh, residential construction program at Delta. And they did say, like, yeah, if you if you were to pour cement down an elevator shaft, the the curing cement would lock the building a little bit to give it a little more structure it you know have this kind of root it would buy you some time basically yeah but in the story i just imagine it's not it's you know like the disparities between the rich and the poor in our world there are things that are just not available to you if you don't have enough money and i think the old man is in there just to show the degree of of crow's admirable character right he is he is exhausted he justifiably could say like, I, you know, I have been up and down stairs talking to people who are slamming doors in my faces in my face all day. Clearly this old guy can find somebody else. But when the old guy says there is nobody else, Crow doesn't have the ability to hang up on that. He's got to go, you know, he's, he is in that theme of self versus community. I think Crow has largely given himself entirely to this cause he doesn't have anything else in his life really i'm confusing them again i don't know if there's any hint in the story that there's actually kind of a love interest with dagmar not at all okay then that is expanded in the novel too that okay but he projects something onto her because it's the only like female companion in his life so because he doesn't interact with anybody else and he has warm feelings towards her, he assumes that's love. So, okay. Well, when you expanded it into the novel, how I love, I'm just curious how you went about that. It starts 
Actually, yeah, he, he's in bad. It starts very similarly. It, it, I think in the beginning, it would almost feel like a kind of the opening chapters would just feel like a longer version of the story. But he does. He's lying in bed. He's thinking about uh, Dagmar. Some of the things are expanded upon. I don't know if in the story he has kind of this blog website that he writes, but he does write. Um, you know, he's very proud of it. He writes these kind of pro infrastructure posts but you know dagmar tells him to nobody's reading them like the time for words is over we have to do something so yeah it starts very similarly he does get a call from the old man he does go up and helps him but it's much more expanded upon i don't know in the story in in the novel he he actually like cleans him up he 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 helps him shower he gets him a glass of water he and then the old man asks to like can you get me my suit? I want, you know, cause he's, he wants dignity. So, and he, he gets this kind of threadbare suit that he finds in the closet and the old man, you know, gets all dressed up, crow shaves him, washes his hair, makes sure that he's okay. Tells him he'll come back the next day. And that, well, when he comes back the next day, the old man is deceased. He was really asking, basically, I want to die with dignity. I don't want to be found unshowered and filthy in my bed Mm -hmm. you know he doesn't tell crow this but that that was his another reason that he called Mm -hmm. basically kind of be ready to pass so basically when you expanded it into the novel did each you know like if it was just a sentence you know or a short paragraph long scene you just expanded each one, or did anything go by the wayside? The super still there. Um, yeah, the, the superintendent is still in there. There's more. Uh, there's more board members. You mm-hmm. there. There is an active antagonist in uh, Chairman Burke, who is mm-hmm. like the board chair, who is much more nefarious in the novel. Yeah, and he does actually like he gets an ally in a woman on the upper floors who is going to run for like a board seat and, you know, she's trying to, to get on the board. So there are more voices that might vote in ways that would, that change the building for the better. Yeah. There's a little bit more with some love interests. You learn a lot more about the structure of the building. There are floors where there are churches, there are floors where there are schools, you know, because everything has to happen in the building. building. Yeah. I I like the, um, I love the title load. Is that going to be, called load too, but just, there's so many metaphors that you can just such a great. I uh, actually, I got load. I mean, I think that works as a story. It possibly is a boring novel type. Mm-hmm. It's called falling sky. Oh, uh, I like that falling sky. Okay. And, and, and yeah, uh, in the novel crow is nicknamed uh, chicken little. Because, you know, everybody and and they kind of know, you know, the board is aware of him. Uh, There are security guards. They're aware of him. And, uh, yeah, they because he starts to make inroads and starts to he does have some people listening to them and more people are showing up to the board meeting with questions. Obviously, there are people who want him silenced, too, because Mm -hmm. he's kind of a he's a fly in the ointment. Right. So are you to the point where you're ready to send it out? It actually is going to be published in 2022 by Montag Press. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. That's wonderful. And that's a small press out of California. Okay. Uh, 
but Montag Press taking their name from Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. They specialize in uh, like dystopia kind of sci-fi novels. So oh, that's wonderful. I was excited to, and that that's a very, it's a short, it's about 50,000 words. So it's, okay. it's just clocking in at a novel. Nice. I like, I actually like, I really like a short novel. Go I do ahead. too. No, I do too. I, I was just looking at um, The Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers. I mean, that's one of my favorite novels and it's super short. Following Mercury by Wioletta Gregg is also really short. I, I like short novels. I like like short and lyrical. Right. Novellas too. I, mm-hmm. I love even though people think it's a novel, River Runs Through It is, you know, it's 99 pages. It's it's a novella. Wow. I didn't realize that. Uh, I have not read that. It's a great read. A lot of uh, ruminating on fly fishing and that, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. Comes out now. It's such a beautifully written book that if you watch the movie, Robert Redford, I think, narrates it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he is just reading you know a lot of it is just reading right from the book because it's so beautifully written yeah I do like a show I don't think I'm on I'm I'm not a long novel writer I don't think I've ever cleared 70,000 words on Mm -hmm. any of my books but during the pandemic in 2020 I wrote two novels I wrote Falling Sky Mm -hmm. and then I started a kind of a gothic horror novel um, called The Dance of Rotten Sticks in august of last year and i finished that in november oh my gosh that's amazing i get yeah i fixate my i always my wife tells me it's like you you know you have anxiety right and i was like no i I don't think i do have anxiety she said you do but (laughs) just you channel it ahead of it by always being busy with something like look you know we went up to sutton's bay and she would just laugh when I'd be on the dock. And after like 10 minutes, I'd be like, I should probably go start the grill. The kids might be hungry. She's like, look at you. You can't sit still. Here's this beautiful you know, bay in front of us. And I've timed you. You've sat with me for nine minutes. That is so funny. Oh, my God. Well, um, I wanted to ask you one last thing. So is there anything I didn't cover or I didn't ask you about the story that you wanted to talk about? I always ask that just in case I missed something. I can't think of it. I'm really glad that you brought up the significance of the super and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I like in that. I remember driving home from Delta once and I was listening to NPR and they were talking. Uh, it may have been tensions between North Korea and America or whatnot. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that it, I felt like I was driving in a poem. And so here I am and I'm going. And But at any time it could just clinch up into a fist and it's all over. You know, even though I feel like I'm in control, I've got my steering wheel, I'm done with a day's work, something I almost had to pull over to the side of the road because it was one of those times where the veil gets lifted and you realize the dangers, you know, it just hits you. It's like these weapons are out there and these nutcases have them. So this false sense of safety that I feel that I just put in a good day's work and I'm driving home. It could all end right now. It could be in the process of ending, and I don't even know it because I, I my radio's off and I'm not hearing a, a, a radio alert. A warning. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think we're so lucky to be writers or, you know, or artists are lucky, too, so that they can use that 
material in some way rather than having it just swim around in your brain and cause a panic attack. Absolutely. I mean, you, you channeled it into an excellent story. So oh, thank you. Thank you so much for um, talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me.